Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for March 14th. Well, it's March break week, and we lost an hour of sleep over the weekend. It may show during some segments. That That's the bonus round. You figure out what segments uh, we sound a little sleepy and bleary during. You can do that. We had a great interview with a retired uh, U.S. Army Major, John Spencer, who is very good on television. I was watching him over the weekend and uh, is fantastic at documenting why it's so difficult to invade cities. Urban warfare literally is a struggle for the invading army, and that's been the case certainly for Russia so far in three-plus weeks of the war in Ukraine. So we talked to John Spencer about that in particular. Lots more on the show as well. Feel free to check it out. Here we go. Toronto Today starts now. I want to get to um, some interesting comments from the CEO of Pfizer before this break. I know anytime you're like, did you hear about Pfizer? Oftentimes it's uh, it's a bit out there, right? It could be it could be Joe Rogan's podcast, which is not exactly out there, given how many millions of people listen to it. But it could be, you know, you, you could have a mainstream actor on there, right? You could have Rob Lowe on there, um, but it could be also somebody that has just spent too long in a lab. And there's been many people that have spent too longs too long in labs and that have sort of defined that sort of mad scientist thing. Then again, then again, we talk to people. I've constantly I'm not going to tell you the name, but I heard a guy driving Friday in a television report. And I'm like, uh, just sounds like we called the most uh, with the most panicked person that there is about COVID. And because we know it's good copy, we, we seem to know that it'll draw a reaction. So, um, you know, th- there was a reason that the character and the moniker mad scientist was laid out at a point in time. You, we realized that, right? The, the, it wasn't the calm scientist. It wasn't the rational side. It was mad scientist. That's something that was always a mad scientist on a sitcom or on a 70s or 80s TV drama. Can't figure out why that why that would be. I, I wonder if it actually if art art imitates life. Sometimes let me get to Russia and Ukraine first, though, before I play the Albert Bourla clip from CBS yesterday. So this was as mainstream as it gets. Uh, But Russia into Ukraine, it's not just about targeting military bases, supply lines. I think that's fairly obvious right now. Yesterday, uh, there was a Russian missile attack on a military base. It was a military base near the Polish border. There's a bunch of foreign volunteers there as well. There's probably nowhere you can go. And we saw that with the death of a New York Times journalist on the weekend. When you watch these CNN people or you watch uh, people from NBC or ABC, in, in essence, embedded almost with uh, with fighting forces in Ukraine and everyone is fighting in Ukraine. That's important. Not just people that signed up for the Ukrainian military service. Uh, And they don't have conscription like they do in Russia. And I'm going to talk about that a little later in the morning uh, with an expert at 730, a brilliant interview. We recorded it last night, and I I think you're going to be dazzled by this guy, a former uh, major uh, in the U.S. Army who went into Iraq. But I saw him on a couple uh, television chat shows. He's been brilliant. He's got a book out about fighting war specifically in cities, in metropolitan areas, and why that's such an advantage, in essence, uh, for the home team. Uh, but they sent a massive missile into a military base in uh, in leave, killed at least 35 people. But that's gotten people rattled because it's close to the Polish border. You may have seen over the weekend the document, uh, the, the documentation anyway of some scholars that, well, if Ukraine falls, Lithuania is next. That, yes, Vladimir Putin's backed into a corner here. There's no way back to the world establishment. There's no way back to having 
tea with the other leaders at the G7 or the G20. Those things are not going to happen. So this is it. How Russia ever, ever in our lifetime, okay? Some of us are going to live another 35, 40 years. Some of you are going to live another 60 years. But I mean in our lifetime. Some of you are going to live 10. But great to have you anyway. But great to understand as well that uh, there's no way back for Putin. And there's probably no way back for Russia economically. There really isn't. What do the Russian people do from this particular point on? Not many know, but they are firing also on civilian targets. That's happening a ton more just in the last four or five days. There's a horrifying, harrowing story about a uh, pregnant woman dying along with one. She was pregnant with a second child and she's passed away along with uh, her her child uh, in this bombing of a maternity hospital. I know that Russia is sending this information back to their own people saying Ukraine's doing this themselves. These are false flags, as it were. Like just when you hear the phrase false flag, like Alex Jones said about Sandy Hook, and it makes you cringe because uh, that's just not something that, uh, you know, that you end up following, following the breadcrumbs, if you will, and finding out, yeah, it was a false flag almost universally. It's meant to disinform and throw people off uh, off the chase, if you will. Rohit Catchrell reports uh, for uh, ITV, and he had this um, in terms of the uh, residential area in Russia and Ukraine that ended up uh, getting just just an apartment building, nine floors that's just gotten leveled. Just every floor has been destroyed, and many of those floors had people in it fleeing for their lives. We've been speaking to residents. Uh, who were forced to evacuate this block uh, in the early hours. Uh, People rushing down the corridors, trying to find their loved ones, trying to find their neighbours. Some people returning indoors to try to retrieve um, their pets. Um, And we are right next, you know, we're in the middle of an estate, uh, a housing estate, but we're also right next to a school. Um, I can see a school in the distance with a a large playing field. Um, I look around. 360 degrees and I see absolutely no evidence of anything that could be seen as a um, as a uh, as, as a military target this is uh, very much a civilian residential area and- of course it is and that's where Putin's going right now and this is why no matter how cornered he felt no matter how he felt well ukraine's going to aim missiles at us they're going to become part of nato a a population of 44 million we've already annexed part of their regions so it's not like they're happy with us to begin with but this goes to show that nothing that's transpired here between russia and ukraine was expected by russia incredibly poorly prepared incredibly unready to be able to counteract all that was going to happen here i mean the setup just looks idiotic uh, for Russia. They needed to check a lot of boxes when they set out on this particular mission. And they were counting on getting this done fast and that Ukraine would be politically weak and would surrender quickly. And you've got to have logistics set. You've got to have communications. None of it seemed organized by Russia. So now it's very random and now it's very brutal. There's have, there have to be logistics and military operations. I'd make the point when we talked to our guest, uh, John Spencer, a former retired Army major at 730 this morning, that the United States going into Iraq, that's seen as some kind of a disaster. But that's the nation building part that went disastrously. Not the shock and awe, not 
ending the regime of Saddam Hussein, not getting into Baghdad and penetrating major cities and having the Iraqis, not all of them obviously welcome the United States as liberators, but no one welcomed the Russians as liberators here. And it, if, if they thought for a second, even a hot minute, that Russia was going to do that, they ended up being dead wrong about those circumstances. And now we're to the point where it's, if you're making excuses for Vladimir Putin, well, he's got to do this and he's got to do that, even though it does seem like the only way out for Putin is the negotiating table, deciding that he doesn't want want this for the next three or four consecutive years, that it will break Russian society for decades to come after he's dead. And as noted, most of us are dead. There's no way back for Russia. It took 25 years to build up to this point. It took about 15 to 16 to become a world superpower again. It really did. We didn't count on Russia being this until 2004, 2005 or so. And they've exerted their power say in the last 12, 13 years or so, once the once the second decade of the 21st century hits, they become a little more of a power again. And they've always had the natural resources. They've always had the oil that they could push out in other directions. Those are obvious things. Um, I want to get to uh, this Albert Borla clip. So he's on CBS yesterday in studio uh, talking on uh, on one of the uh, morning chat shows. And the idea on Face the Nation, the idea is we're going to need a fourth shot. Now, listen, many of you are thinking to themselves, perhaps that will be the case. Maybe I expected to get a fourth shot at a certain point in time. The quote is interesting. Now, I'm not going to I don't think this is an English as a second language scenario here, but uh, it does sound like there's a slight contradiction. I'll explain where I think he's not actually contradicting himself afterwards, but he did tell Face the Nation a fourth dose of the COVID-19 vaccine will be necessary to maintain manageable levels of hospitalizations and mild infections. Here's what he said. I think so. Many variants are coming, and Omicron was the first one that was able to evade in a skillful way the immune protection that we were giving. But also we know that the duration of the protection doesn't last very long. So what we are trying to do, and we are working very diligently right now, it is to make not only a vaccine that will protect against all variants, including Omicron, but also something that uh, can protect for at least a year. So you've seen some of that data on a, on a fourth dose, a second booster shot. Mm -hmm. You think it will be necessary? It is necessary, a fourth boost right now. The, the protection that we are getting from the third, it is uh, good enough actually quite good for hospitalizations and deaths is not that good against infections but doesn't last very long mm -hmm. but we are just submitting those data to the fda and then we will see what the experts also will say outside pfizer yeah it look it, it, it was bound to happen that pfizer is going to say that this is the case the great question is now that mandates have dropped and we will move forward. It is difficult to see a circumstance in which any sort of mandate returns. You know, and I know if we're going to do the math, what's the best mandate we could have for our safety? What's the best mandate? Well, I'll tell you what it is. And you're not going to like the answer. Some of you won't like the answer. Everybody over 60 that's not boosted shouldn't be allowed out of their houses. But we would never do that. We would never do that because the over 60s would complain too much. That would be seen as inhumane. Not keeping cloth masks on five-year-olds for 35 hours a week. Not submitting them to rules that we would never, ever submit to as adults. But the one part is, is inhumane. 60-year-olds not getting a third shot. 
But that would limit hospitalizations a ton more than any possible measure that we could do in schools. There's a lot of people going to be negative about the four shot saying, I'm done. I did it. I've had threes fine. Two's fine for most of you. Most of you may be saying that indeed the case. Yes. Well, it, but it goes to show we're going to have a tough time defining again and redefining again what indeed is fully vaccinated. And that's why we we're going to have to make this about choice. The vaccines are going to have to be about choice. You see yesterday, former President Barack Obama tested positive for covid. What's he got? A scratchy throat. You don't explain to anybody that you've got a scratchy throat if you are sick. You're pretty fine if all you've got is a scratchy throat for a couple days. Yes, he says that's a reminder to get vaccinated. I suppose it is um, because it's limited any sort of bad outcome for him. A positive COVID test. And I assume he said three shots of the vaccine. But that's how it's going to go. Generally, healthy people aren't going to get sick after getting vaccinated, whether they're 60 or whether they're not. Remember as well, Obama would be, uh, as I would describe, the you know, the last thing he is is obese. And there was an obesity study yesterday that I'm going to get to a little later in the show that documented just how many people that qualify as being obese under guidelines uh, and data ended up dying of covid. And it's probably as much as you think, if not a lot more, but it sure isn't less. Yesterday morning, also late morning, I watched uh, Patrick Brown in Brampton speak. He's, of course, the mayor of Brampton. Would have been, should have been, could have been to many. You can pick all three of those, one of the three, two of the three, but but um, at least one of them is true. Would have been premier of the province in 2018. I think uh, we all heard that train coming for the Ontario Liberals and Kathleen Wynne. I don't think there's much question about that. The only issue is if Kathleen Wynne had stepped out of the way, um, had she not stepped out of the way, would the Liberals be sitting with non-party status with seven seats right now? Always debated. We've had four years almost uh, to debate that. Here's a clip of Patrick Brown talking about the notion um, of being more an inclusive party than the last two federal elections with Andrew Scheer at the helm, with Aaron O'Toole at the helm. The conservative party that I am fighting for is one that is principled and inclusive. I want people who have never voted conservative and have voted for other parties to feel welcome in our family. Now, he makes the point as well in Ontario. What have we called it? A red wall in the GTA. Um, Certainly, you know, you go down that 401 corridor. The liberals have held a lot of seats during this Trudeau run. They started to sort of pick away at it in Stephen Harper's last election win, but really pushed through in 2015, and it's still holding strong. Again, Sheer couldn't push through it. O'Toole certainly, uh, though an Ontario MP, could not push through it as well. He says, Patrick Brown says, that he can do something. Pierre Polyev cannot. Mark my words. With me as Conservative Party leader, there will no longer be free passes for Liberal seats in suburban Canada. In fact, with me, there will be no safe Liberal seats anywhere. Now, let me give you a quick thought on this, and then I'm dying to talk to Alex Boudelier about this. Um, th- there's going to be a lot of emphasis on the moderate nature of uh, the Mayor Brampton, Patrick Brown, and that's going to play in his favor. There's no doubt about that. I think he can mobilize. I think he did mobilize coming from way, way back when when he announced he was going to run even for the leadership of the Ontario Conservative Party. A lot of people are like, this isn't going to work. He's been an MP in Barrie. 
I, do, is he well known through the rest of the province? Well, it didn't matter. And and he rose up. It's not, you know, we're not talking, do you believe in miracles? Yes, but it was a big, big thing with him coming back. So he's going to be able to mobilize here. I do think he can win seats that are current liberal strongholds if he's the federal leader. Here's what I question about some of the strategy from yesterday. And I'm very objective about this stuff. Here's the sentence um, on on his page. When the liberal media tried to make him cancel culture's latest victim by smearing him with false allegations. Well, hold it. Hold it. One news organization did that, CTV, and it was bad journalism. And many people thought it was bad journalism at the time. And CTV finally admitted, though they might have wanted to earlier, that it was bad journalism last week. So I didn't necessarily see, I don't see that as a cancel culture thing. I see that as terrible journalism. I also see him as being potentially victimized by, in essence, an inside job within his own provincial party. I do think that. So I'm not quite sure about the the liberal media thing. And I have no problem pointing out the extremes of 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 going too far one way or the other way. Um, there are issues in uh, in mainstream media right now with pushing something one way and pushing something uh, another way that need to be documented. Uh, very happy to bring on uh, Alex Boudelier. He, of course, uh, is with Global News and senior national politics reporter. Alex, it's great to have you. Thanks for getting up early for me. Um, when, when I lay that out there, do you look and go, ah, is that, you know, that may not necessarily be the case. Cancel culture, Patrick Brown, liberal media. But will it appeal to his base? Are those are those in there? Are those phrases in there by design as an opening salvo? Well, uh, yeah, I, I think the the one part that I would agree with is that certainly um, it's there to sort of appeal to that sort of culture warrior sort of set within the conservative base. Um, you know, anytime you talk about the you know the evils of liberal mainstream media, quote unquote. Um, certainly it's there to design, uh, you know, to appeal to a certain segment of the conservative, uh, uh, electorate. Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, look, um, we just went through a mini controversy last week where a former colleague of ours who now works for CBC asked Christian Freeland and Melanie Jolie a report and all of a sudden a question in Europe and all of a sudden he's, he's Canada's Tucker Carlson to some for uh, for 24, 36 hours. I'm like, oh, that so it works the opposite way. Also, interesting to know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, whatever merits of that question, uh, you know, whatever the merits of that question may be, uh, certainly the reaction was, I think, outsized to um, mm. look, I've, I've asked dumb questions before. You've asked dumb mm-hmm. questions before. It's an occupational hazard. Uh, uh, but certainly the reaction was um, outsized to the, 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 the level of the issue. When we came uh, on the show Friday, uh, this sort of alliance, if you will, had already been discussed. Many of these are under the surface, so it's hardly um, it's hardly a secret if we're talking about it before Patrick Brown even announces that he's jumping into the race, Alex. But this alliance with himself and Jean Charest, who Brown considers a, a mentor and and really you know gener- you know started his motor at a very young age, a teenager basically for politics. I think it's interesting. What's your observation of of some of what's been discussed about it that they'll support? each other and they think either of us can win a federal election we're not so sure about everybody else in the race well i mean the first thing that i would say is that you know jean charret's camp at least has on the record denied that there's any such alliance between patrick brown and and uh jean charret that said um you know they're very similar candidates you know they're both sort of appealing to you know a big tent conservative message they're both saying you know we're the ones who can win a general election and Keep in mind, winning the conservative leadership and winning a general election, two mm-hmm. very different things. You know, uh, Andrew Scheer could tell you that. Aaron O'Toole could, te- could tell you that. 
so, uh, you know, while they deny that there's any sort of um, collusion going on, which is, you know, probably sensible because they could be disqualified from the race if they if they were colluding. Um, uh, you know, I, I think they're very similar candidates, and that's why I think you hear a lot of that chatter. And Alex, the liberals realized this too, didn't they? With with I think both Michael Ignatiev and, and Stefan Dion, it's one thing to elect a leader, but are you asking themselves? Are are they asking all the right questions, all the right questions at the wrong time and for the wrong purpose? Because the goal is beat Stephen Harper. That's the goal. And and when they when they elected Dion a leader and Ignatiev a leader, um, I'm not sure they went to bed on either of those nights thinking we found our guy to do just that. They need to find it this time around, if just especially if Justin Trudeau runs again, which I, I think many people think he still will. There's always the option that he'll walk. But um, but until the conservatives put somebody up that uh, they're sure can can get that W, if you will, then why would Trudeau not run again? Well, I, I think this is a really important point. Um, you know, I wrote about this on the weekend uh, on globalnews.ca mm-hmm. um, about, you know, the mood of the conservative base right now, the mood of the conservative electorate. I don't think that they're thinking, um, you know, who is the best person to win a general election. I think they're thinking who reflects who we are right now. Um, I really, I, I, I really don't see them sort of thinking strategically as to who would appeal to, you know, the general electorate. I see them saying, you know what, we've been told we have to make compromises. We've been told we have to change to win. uh, And we're sick of it. Um, You know, I hear that from conservatives all the time, that they want a leader who is a conservative and reflects where the conservative party is at. So I really don't think that, you know, the general election, whenever it comes, uh, is looming too large in this race. I think it's more so you know, who can sell enough memberships, frankly, and who can reflect back to the conservative base who they want to see. And Brown has a great, great record of mobilizing, getting younger uh, voters out and, and making people uh, b- believe in him. Alex Boudelier, by the way, joining a senior national politics reporter for Global News. I'll ask this because as a last question, I said it out of the gate, um, mentioning the allegations. Um, I don't think Alex, I don't I don't think um, Patrick Brown was was canceled. I don't think then you become mayor of Brampton and jump in the race if you've been canceled. But um, but either way, I, I do wonder, we see a lot more mud wrestling in politics in the United States and we don't see quite as much in Canada, do you see any element of uh, of this leadership race from any of the other candidates that will use the now deemed false allegations against Brown against Brown in this run? Um, no, I don't. Um, you know, you saw from Pierre Polyev, the presumed front runner in the race yesterday. His campaign released a video, you know, saying some pretty nasty stuff about Patrick Brown, mm-hmm. but left out the uh, question of the CTV allegations. I would just um, I would just caution that the CTV story was not proven false. The CTV story is still on their website. No money changed hands in the settlement between CTV and Patrick Brown, and you know people can draw their own conclusions from um, from uh, that string of facts. Mm-hmm. Alex Boudelier, you can read him on globalnews.ca uh, over the weekend covering the announcement for Patrick uh, Brown. It's great to have you on the show. I always enjoy our chats. Thanks for making the time for our audience. Always a pleasure. Take care. Our guest, talking Russia, Ukraine. I saw him on TV, thought he was brilliant, and, and we were able to track him down over the weekend. Uh, has a book coming out called Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War. And uh, he has documented why it's so difficult to go into major cities, kind of as the road team, as an invading army, 
and succeed. And Russia's facing that right now. He is a retired Army Major, John Spencer. It is great to have you on here in Toronto. Uh, John, thank you very much for making the time. I would look and I'd say I think we've seen so many occasions in the last three weeks where, it, it, you know, I, I think it's unfair to say Russia you know, wasn't organized to invade Ukraine. They were. They got organized for that. They weren't organized in in in, in thinking they were going to meet this level and this form of resistance. No, I, I'd say 72 hours is what they planned going into it. And, and all plans are great until you get punched in the face. Um, and that's what happened. They got punched in the face. And, oh, by the way, their Ukrainians have mad, beautifully surprised all of us in what they do to include hit like railheads and things like that would that would be really critical to extend past 72 hours but yeah they got punched in the face and then stuff that really surprised us on what the russians couldn't do we say amateurs talk tactics and like fighting and professionals talk logistics if you invade a country you better be a master of logistics clearly russia and, and people have already been fired and we've seen generals being fired and, and god knows what is going to happen to them but this is a complete Failure on multiple levels, failure of intelligence, failure in planning, failure in uh, flexibility in the plan, failure in logistics, uh, first and foremost, which will kill you. John Spencer is a retired uh, U.S. Army major joining us, chair of Urban Warfare Studies, uh, Madison Policy Forum, joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Um, when you when when we're uh, Wednesday, you and I are aware a couple hours time difference. Um, but when you find out the Wednesday three weeks ago that that, you know, Russia has been amassing all this presence at the Ukrainian border, they're going in. Um, what's what's surprised you the most? What surprised you the least about everything that's happened in the last three weeks? Man, that's a long list for you, for sure. Uh, I think number one was surprised me as a person who did an invasion into Iraq was the light footedness that they went in, even the bombing campaign. They, they didn't even do what would be standard. We called it shock and awe in 2003. Most people knew that term. But even the level of bombing um, and to, to gain air dominance, you don't invade a country unless you ha- can achieve air dominance and air superiority. Uh, there's different terms for it, but that's step one. So really surprising that they didn't even, weren't able to do that. And then they just were flying light forces around uh, trying to secure like airheads and airfields and ports, which is normal. Um, th- that that really surprised me. But to be honest, um, if you and I've gotten called on called out on this based on what we all thought was amassed on the borders, how long the Ukrainians would last. Nobody expected Trust me, as a as a warfare scholar, nobody expected the the citizens to stand up and fight with the military. Um, so they went from like a you know two hundred a hundred thousand man Ukrainian army to hundreds of thousands overnight. Now that's where I kind of got into this on. Hey, look, don't civilians just don't go out there and start throwing Molotov cocktails at tanks. You know, I started putting out some tweets on my Twitter, which went kind of viral. Just as a guy like who studied this for a long time, you. If they come into the urban area, there's no military, no matter how powerful they are, can be literally, it, it can be turned into a meat grinder and, and they will fear it. Militaries fear urban warfare. Well, is that mostly because people have homes? They know they know the best hiding places. It's their terrain. And you're just a sitting duck if you roll a tank down the street or you, you know, you 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 drive a Jeep uh down a main street. Um unless you've got I'm guessing. So I'm a layman, obviously, unless they've got air cover for that specifically, 
um, aren't aren't they sitting ducks to to you know guns from the shadows and and some some quick attacks from from the middle of nowhere in those cities? Yeah, I mean it's really basic, and I mean you don't have to be an expert to understand. Um, I, I wrote something called the eight war, eight rules of urban warfare, which um, so it's not just knowing the terrain; it's the physical environment, the fact that cities in themselves, urban areas, if you think about are natural and made fighting positions. Concrete buildings make really good bunkers. Now you can knock them down, um, but when you enter as a military, you want to put a lot of fire into it because you can't see where the enemy is. Just like you said, you go down the street and not know that the enemy's there is it's scary. But most of your systems don't work in the urban terrain, right? We have militaries want to hit the enemy as far away as possible with as much power as possible. Once they go into the urban train, they lose all that. And, and it's basically literally like walking down the street with your eyes closed uh, and, and waiting to get punched in the face. Because that's what it is, because none of your systems work in that train. That's why we all avoid and bypass it. But, you know, I've been from day one saying in this scenario, there's only one one goal. Everything in this entire war is one goal. Get to the middle of Kiev and raise the, the Russian flag. Yeah. They don't have to kill anybody. And the Ukrainians don't have to kill the, the Russian military, to be honest. They just have to not let them achieve that one goal, which is get into the middle of Kiev and raise the Russian flag. The, the Russian military is going to exhaust themselves, even if they try to flatten Kiev by bombing it. Uh, that won't work in this scenario because there's a huge underground. And the underground, again, another scary part of urban is that usually there's underground in the urban. And tell, I mean, talk about a nightmare as a soldier with, from experience is looking down a tunnel and going, okay, what do I do now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think most military experts, um, they, they, well, they've gotten the first three weeks wrong, but do you think they thought there'd be, there'd be no resistance? Like there would be, weakness lack of willpower or or do you think they just thought the ukrainians will fight back they'll just be so overmanned is it we saw it in the summer last summer didn't we in afghanistan where the taliban roll in and and the the the, the police that were you know had been cops there for are like we're good like we surrender it's your place again that has that hasn't factored in one bit so w- was it more they'd be absolutely overwhelmed by russian military might or do you think we thought the ukrainians would just be would throw up their arms and say, what are we going to do? We give up. Yeah. So that, yeah, absolutely. All what you just said. Uh, usually when militaries invade, the, the civilians don't fight. There's a very small aspect. I mean, even you think about Iraq, Afghanistan, I mean, that's like 10% of the population that ever we were fighting. If you call it the military, usually the civilians don't rise up. So that's a nightmare to enter an urban area and think that there's thousands and thousands of people waiting for you to come inside. And then now, let's be clear. Um, Zelensky is key. Uh, soldiers don't fight. It doesn't matter how powerful the equipment is. Soldiers don't fight for dictators. They fight for a cause and they fight for each other. If Zelensky would have left, it would have been Afghanistan all over again. The, the, Which the is what people, the Afghan leader did in the summer. He got, he, emptied his bank uh, bank account, got on an airplane and got out of there, didn't he, before yeah. they even switched power? So let's give that guy some credit because had he left, you would have seen military units falling apart, let alone the civilians fighting. The fact that he's still there, um, this is the aspects of about being in the military. People just don't understand. I mean, how people, it's not about weapons. This is definitely in the urban train. It's not about numbers. Russians don't have the numbers to, to do what they've tried trying to do. But this is about the will to fight. And Zelensky has given the Ukrainian people the will to keep fighting. 
John, when people are critical of the initial, um, uh, if, if they say, well, Iraq was this, Iraq with that, my my observation of it, and and even what I've read of it, but you're there, is the assault strike, the shock and awe works, um, getting rid of Saddam Hussein works. It was the nation building afterwards that was more of a struggle um, a couple of years later. Do I have that mostly right? A hundred percent. No. Okay. And I was there. Like I was there the day that they decided that all Iraqi army would be fired and all people that were a part of the former government, doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or anything, would be fired. I was there on the ground. Um, so that, that gets into the bigger conversation of what does winning look like, really? I mean, did the coalition achieve its goal of re- removing Saddam Hussein? Goal one achieved, mission, mission accomplished, right? But if the goal was to create a stable nation and, and transition to nation building, all there, there's very few nations in, in history that have been able to do that and get that right without a, uh, a government in place or, or a system in place then to support and back when you try to create it yourself. Absolutely. And that's kind of in this situation, what, what most people understand is even if Russia achieves that one goal I told you about, I mean, his he'll fight the biggest insurgency in in modern history. Really, honestly, I believe that. And, and the Ukrainians have shown that again, which is not normal. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You're, you're spot on with that analysis. And, and I can be critical now having left. Same thing in Afghanistan. I mean, Taliban took, what, two weeks to take down? Yeah. A mission accomplished. And then we decided to try to build a nation in a place that's never had a nation, uh, to be honest, as an entire like 52 country coalition. That was just, to me, a fool's errand. It's simple to say, isn't it? There's some nations that um, don't want democracy um, as badly as others. They don't. I mean, some of it's hubris too. Yeah. What General McMaster just calls strategic hubris. It's not that they don't want democracy. It's not what they are. It's not they respect power. They respect you know, it's different cultures, different civilizations. Um, you can't force a system on them. Uh, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems simple, and it in some aspects it is. John Spencer is our guest chair of Urban, Urban Warfare Studies Madison Policy uh, Forum, um, and his book is called Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War. That is out this summer. Uh, joining us on 640 Toronto. Yeah, like w- when I watch the destruction, people are saying, you know, th- though you're laying this out for our audience, how modern um, 21st century war is. Many people are saying, well, the Russians are coming in with World War One, World War Two tactics. It is just utter destruction, reduced cities to rubble. And I think the simpler, the simplest question is, do they want do they want to frighten the people? Do they want to destroy the infrastructure? Like if you and I are uh, if you and I live on we're neighbors and we have farms outside uh, Kiev and they destroy our farms. Do they want to someday rebuild the farms? Are they trying to frighten us into submission? Are they like I, I sort of we, yeah we we don't know what success looks like for either side in this case, but I think a lot of people wonder about the the sort of wanton random destruction that especially a lot of the airstrikes are committing. Yeah, so it's I mean, this is where it does get com- complex and, and simple at the same time. All war is politics by other means. So we know what we know what. Russia's initial goal is, right? Take out the government, put a Russian puppet in, mm-hmm. he, and should repeat Georgia, Crimea, you know, these aspects. That's pretty simple. The, the, the ways he does that, uh, all war is also a contest of wills. He is trying to achieve his goal of removing the government. Now, he can do that in a couple of ways. He can bomb and create the, which he has, the greatest humanitarian crisis in modern history, and soon to, to overcome World War II numbers in a single country. 
um, which then puts pressure on everybody else. And you you could get the government to uh, adhere to your will, right? Your goal to get him to surrender, flee or anything by killing his people, creating chaos, uh, forcing harm. It's all sadistic, but it it is all war is hell. Now, urban warfare is hell on earth, but all war is hell. So I'll try and I'll try and end on a lighter pop culture <laughs> note. Please tell me uh, that you've seen the 1984 movie Red Dawn. Absolutely. Come on. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought anybody would be in the U.S. military. Not so. It's a 1984 movie. Comes out at the height of uh, of of you know Ronald Reagan, all the Cold War tension, uh, controversy about the movie. But that's I showed my your young your kids are really young for. It, but I showed my teenage boys that last summer. Uh, apropos of nothing, I just like showing them a retro movie once in a while. I'm like, you guys will like this on a Saturday night with mom out of town. So we watched it. But I can't help thinking. I I think about it every time I see footage, John. I I just think there's the Wolverines. They're up there, in the, but there's just tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of of groups like that. It from 1984's Red Dawn. It. I, there's not been much to smile about for this, but I'm like that amount of fight back and that amount of t- sort of monkey in the wrench is that's what I'm seeing. Absolutely. And take, take that, those Wolverines and smack them inside of a city into a concrete steel reinforced bunker. Yeah. And the damage that they can do it. Anybody who enters their ambush. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out in the movie, how it was so easy for Russian and Cuban paratroopers to, Get into Kansas and Nebraska, but that's that maybe that's for another <laughs> in yeah. a Big Twelve country. But that's that's maybe for another. I mean, to be another honest, appearance. I, there's some plot holes. There's, there yeah. are some, but still. Uh, to be honest, what the movies get wrong is that in the modern battlefield, if you can be seen from the sky, you're dead. So if you're in the open, in the woods, anything like that, I can drop a bomb on your head with extreme precision. So that's why we're, and that's another reason why war has continues to progress into our cities because in, if anybody's in the open in the woods in the jungle i can i can destroy you yeah yeah um i'm really looking forward to reading your book when it comes out this summer and have so enjoyed our conversation i've enjoyed seeing you on television and uh, and uh coming across uh your work it really a great pleasure to have you on and, and i learned a ton thank you very much for the time thank you so much our next guest uh, has the uh, Bad and Bitchy podcast. She also uh, has a, well, she's just announced a restructuring of her newsletter. So that's the breaking news of the mornings. That's <laughs> of all the news that, we, <laughs> that we'll get to. It's the uh, restructuring. But a minute before you come on, you're like, I have a restructuring of a newsletter doing. This is like a Friday news dump here on Not In My Color. Hello. Hi. Yes. Yes, I'm relaunching my newsletter. So, like, it's a place where you'll get all my writing, too. So, and, like, the Hill Times allows me to reprint or repost after a certain amount of time. So, if you want to wait a little bit, you know, you can read all my stuff for free. I hear that. I I got you there. Um, yeah. And and uh, this is Erica Eiffel that we're uh, we're speaking with, of course. And you can follow her at Wicked Chick W I C K D C H I Q. I mean, uh, autocorrect didn't. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that might have been on purpose. Uh, Erica Eiffel is joining us here. You could just put in Erica Eiffel. Just Google me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so you, so much to talk about. So much to talk. Are you so happy? By the way, are you so happy? Uh, TB twelve's coming back. That's so awesome. I mean, who? Yeah. 44 and a half. I mean, age is just a number to people like, uh, well, it's a big number for you and me, but to Tom Brady, who drinks a lot of water and, you know, uh, stays fit the right way. Is it, he's coming back, man. 
He's not retiring. In the NFC, he's going to be a problem for your Dallas Cowboys, I feel like. Are you making this up? He unretired last night around 5.30 p.m. Are you serious? Of course. I, oh, I love that I'm breaking news to somebody this morning. Yes. Why? Because he's back. Because he's had enough. 40 days at home was enough. Giselle makes him do things like take the garbage out and recycle and separate plastics like, and, and, non, and non-perishables. No, 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 no. No, we got rid of him once. I don't. I want to redo. I know. I want a Tom Brady retirement redo. I want it all. Okay. Yeah. This it's is a new era. Russell Wilson going to Denver. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Yikes. But whatever. You know, it's a new era. And this new era is son Tom Brady. Yeah. It, it, well, n- at least. Tom, please. At least Go out on a high. One more year. Now, you and I were uh, were chatting. You observed some, uh, you know, sometimes we talk about media on media crime here. We saw a little <laughs> bit of it last week. Oh, my gosh. Media and media crime. So Travis Janraj, who used to work here, asked a question of. Did he really? He really did. Asked a oh. question of Christopher. He's now with CB. He's now with the corporation. Now, um, he's government funded now. Not like the rest of us <laughs> private hacks. So he asked a question of the Super Bowl. No time. I don't know that he asked a question of Christian Freeland and Melanie Jolie. uh, Well, in Eastern Europe. And Mm -hmm. uh, and the question was uh, not as well received by Ms. Freeland and Miss Jolie. What do you think? What what do you think of all that? Like I I had somebody say to me, is this what we're doing now? Is is, uh, Travis Danridge all of a sudden Canada's Tucker Carlson because he happened to ask a clunky question? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, I thought that was so stupid because here's the thing. Um, I'm sorry. Is it, are we not supposed to ask Queen Christian Freeland a question? <laughs> or Princess Melanie Jolie? Oh, I just said princess. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for that. However, I'm just trying to say they're not royalty, right? And the whole thing is that they're supposed to be accountable to us. And the whole point of the, what are we, fourth estate, right? Is it the fifth? Yep. It's a, it's fourth a, estate, yeah. right? The whole point is to hold those people accountable. So I don't know why Christian Freeland now has the power to look at a CBC reporter because she did not like his question. And then he gets piled on by other media. That's disgusting. I think there there was very much an element of look he he explained it and I've done this before and I've I've kicked myself in the in in many body parts when I use many I people are saying that. like like lots okay. of th- th- there's an awkward but there's an awkward sort of many people I'm seeing this a lot with COVID you get many moms are scared to send their kids back to school well I don't know is yeah. it the majority um or or did you just find the three most scared people within a five kilometer radius which exactly. is it but but so Travis explained the many people thing. But the, you know, like there wasn't, there was a "how dare you" a element a to the reaction from Freeland and Jolie. There was, yeah, yeah. And how dare they, especially Christian Freeland, who's I don't know nationalism. We're not too sure about. Okay, that's going to be a problem for the liberals, by the way, because the whole thing. I'm talking. I'm talking in reference to the scarf and the picture and the this and the that, right? Yeah, that yeah that that kind of came and went, but you're right. There was controversy about it. There's there's a there is, 
I just don't think that she has as much room to be like that as she thinks she does. That is my point, because there are questions circling around about her right now. And don't tell me about Russian disinformation either. These questions have been there for a while, and they haven't been addressed by her in any real manner. And she's going to have to address them, considering we're in a war with Ukraine. I think the... Yeah. With Ukraine, with Russia. Do you see? I haven't gotten enough sleep. Do you see how the loss of an hour has been? We're all a little sluggish and uh, and rattled uh, this morning. You know, I've always believed that they put those stats out, Eric, and they say, well, you know, people get into more car accidents and they walk across the street and they're not looking in traffic. But I'm like, no one should leave their homes after this hour long change for about 72. You want to lock people down? Make it 72 hours after the clocks go forward and we lose an hour of sleep. That's a lockdown I could support. I'm seriously taking a nap after this. I cannot. <laughs> well, we won't we won't book you at uh, at six thirty five a.m. So um, you you know you're uh, you've obviously you know the Ottawa landscape very very well. Here comes so for for conservative leadership, regardless of what somebody thinks of the party or whether somebody would vote for them or not, and and you've been very fair and, and critical of especially during the the four week uh, trucker fiasco. So you're very critical of Justin Trudeau and where he was and what he was saying and how much truly he was doing about it. Do you yeah they found him eventually it was it was like a where's where's Waldo game after about yeah. 14 days yeah. but there's a distinction I'm making between you winning the party leadership and winning the election the liberals have made this mistake before with Michael Ignatieff and Stefan Dion and they pat themselves on the back and like we've got a wonderful person what a good human being okay can he wrestle it out with Stephen Harper over five months of an election campaign? And that's what the conservatives really have to call themselves on here. Almost the opposite, though. It seems like Pierre's race to lose, but they have to ask themselves hard questions about are they making the same mistake a third time in a row thinking Pierre can win Ontario seats that that, that Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Scheer did not? What's your thought on that? Um, that's, I, I don't think this is the race. I, I don't, I, you know, rarely does the front runner at the beginning end up anywhere, really, because it all depends on what the party's going to do. Leslie Lewis entered this race, and I have thoughts about that. I'm so excited, and I'll tell you why I'm so excited. The way people are going to trip over themselves to explain Leslie Lewis, I'm just going to sit back and laugh. And the reason is, that Leslie Lewis made a good turnout. Like she had a good finish the last time. Now you could see that the party is more fractured. And I feel like those social conservatives in the party are really flexing their muscles. That's their girl. And I don't know if Pierre Polyev can really convince them to not back Leslie Lewis, who really is a true blue. Like she really is their person she's the harshest social conservative of the yeah, group isn't she exactly with, with women i mean women's rights pro yes. pro-life yes right those yes. things are back on the table exactly leslie lewis is very familiar to me like which black family doesn't have an auntie like leslie anyway all this you know the social conservative the seven-day inventors the whole thing anyway um all this to say i don't know what, how powerful that wing is in the party, mm-hmm. or um, I don't have an insight into that. But what will be interesting 
is to see how that faction votes. Because I don't, I'm not convinced that they're convinced that Pierre Polyev is somehow more true to their convictions than Leslie Lewis. I don't think you can win an election. I don't think you can win the necessary seats in Ontario. Let me set that straight with putting anything to do with um, with with being pro-life on the table. I, and I certainly I don't think you can and I don't think you can do it with gay marriage either. And Andrew Scheer wouldn't take either of those things out of the equation and make it very clear where he stood. And that cost well, it depends, him. Well, what do the conservative what what do the re, what does the rest of the conservative party want? the ones who aren't social conservatives. What do they want? Do they want to win or do they want to give in? I don't know what they want to do. That's up to them. But like, it seems to me that the moderate wing, which is the term moderate is flexible, but the moderate wing really needs to decide what they want as a future of their party. You're right. And and you and and I have to be willing to fight for it. And I don't see that from them. This is what I say about moderates. They never fight for anything. Ever. That feels that feels like a a hundred percent, a hundred times out of a hundred, they don't. Not really. Some people like to ride the fence. Some people like to sit they, in the oh middle and watch. God. Of course they do. People, yeah, they of do. Of course, of course they do. Until the winning team emerges, and then all of a sudden. But this is a time where you're going to have to fight for a principle for something, and that's what I'm saying. If you're not used to doing that, I don't know how good you are. Ah, but it works the opposite. Well, you and I both lived in the States. We've watched a lot of people who might lean right or be social conservatives, and they've sold their soul to support yeah. Donald Trump because yeah. they know how people are going to vote. And you go yeah. again, you, you're, if you're Liz Cheney, if you're Mitt Romney, you might still hang in there and, and, and keep your Senate seat because you've done it so long. But but you're out. You're on the outer limits of that party now because you went against mm-hmm. Trump even once, even even a half time. Mm-hmm. And that happens sometimes. So, would it, is it better to be in the party? <laughs> Given what the party is, is it better for that? What do you want your longer term yeah. legacy to be? You know, do you want to be on the right side of history? That is the question. And never is the expansion of rights or equity the wrong side of history. Never. No. How do you think a provincial election result uh, factors into the next federal election result. I, I do wonder if any of these PC leader candidates, whether it's Pierre Polyev, whether it's Patrick Brown, whomever, I'm not sure it helps them if Doug Ford's elected to another majority government. I'm not sure either. I'm okay. not sure either. But, you know, going back to the conservative leadership race, here's the really interesting question for me that I find so delicious right? Because it's going to make everything so complicated. And I love that. Um, Chris, like if you're the conservatives, right? If you're smart, you're not looking to find somebody to run against Trudeau. You're looking to find somebody to run against Freeland. And Leslie Lewis would be an interesting, interesting candidate to put up against Freeland. And could, and, and that, that election could split this country apart. But, you know, I, I think that's the exciting part for me. I wonder, though, I think it's bad strategy for the liberals. If Trudeau's not going to run again, you don't let anybody know that. You keep that as as tight yeah. to the to the chest as you can until the conservatives pick their leader. And I, uh, yes, but you, Christopher Freeland is always running, okay? 
I was at an Equal Voice Gala back in December, okay? And Christian Freeland was there and she spoke. And I was like, this woman is campaigning right now. Like, it sounded like she was campaigning. She's always campaigning. As you can tell, I'm not her biggest fan. I don't think she's electable as a prime minister. I don't. Why? <laughs> We're, we've only got nine minutes left till nine o'clock. I, but I don't think I don't she. Know why? I, I, well, I, I I look at somebody, and I've heard this from a couple people. I look at somebody like Anita Anand, and I go, that person might run. Obviously, yes. Yes. there's other candidates that that yes. just don't. They're not going to have some of the sticky business that Freeland's going to have, which we're talking about right now. It's Hillary Clinton. She's our Hillary. She's our Hillary. No, seriously. <laughs> you know, like, I, we still don't know, like, that business that happened in Bolivia with that coup. And Christian Freeland's fingerprints are all over that. Venezuela. Freeland's fingerprints all over that. I don't like what she as abroad as president of the Lima group. And, you know, there are questions about your, like she does have sticky fingers all over that place. Just like, just like Hillary had in Haiti. Yeah, but that's not, that's not why Americans didn't vote for, didn't not vote for Hillary because of Haiti. They wanted, they they wanted to feel like she connected with them. The basket of deplorables comment was a mistake. There were lots of things she did wrong. No, 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 no. I don't think she would have been elected had, there's just too much that, Mm. there's too much Hillary. um, And I still think that stink of the Iraq war, it follows her. It still follows. Her. Yeah, I think I think people at the end of the day, though, sometimes I think they just didn't feel like they could sit down and have a coffee with her and people you know and, 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 and they'd get what and I think but I think Freeland has that also. I think that's a yeah, str- exactly. we, it goes back to our conversations that how dare you ask me? You, you chuckle at Travis's uh, question. You roll your eyes and you go, well, uh, you're the only person I'm hearing that from. But here's here's why we're here. And they lay out actually a good reason. I can't castigate Justin Trudeau for going. I think more people would have castigated him for not going. I think it's the right thing for him to be there. I think it absolutely yeah. was. So, so why can't they tell us that? That's it. That's I know. It's you just no, talk. No, this is my problem with this government. They don't. This government is arrogant. And I'll tell you this: they don't tell us anything about Ukraine. They sandwich it in little, little fly-by-night, yeah. little, little um, announcements in between emergencies act and in between other news. They, they have not rolled out their 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 kind of vision or their goal they haven't they haven't talked to us about their level of involvement that they expect to be in i mean they've done none of that and now when you ask them a question you get can i from christopher freeland imagine the cheek of that you're elected by us you're there at our behest and through media we can't ask a question to you who are you the queen even the queen, I'm just like, she's just another person. How dare she? Yeah. How dare it's... she treat voters like that? How dare she treat the media like that? And this is the same government who's going to come out next month and be like, we love the media. The media is so great. We need the media for a functioning democracy. Then why don't you answer the questions? Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. Hey, I got I to gotta run. That that breaking that Tom Brady news cost us night. Your reaction was so shocked it cost us 90 i i didn't mean to you know give you a heart attack on a monday morning after the clocks have turned ahead also what happens when i stay off twitter it's bad i know well yeah there's pros and cons with everything in life as you're well aware um <laughs> hey uh check her out on the bad and bitchy podcast uh, she's erica eiffel uh thank you so much for the you time erica this with swears <laughs> i know thank you
Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We appreciate it. Back with a live show tomorrow, Tuesday morning. And that, of course, between 5.30 and 9 a.m. And you can find us right here where you found us daily. Our podcast up on Apple Podcasts or wherever else, usually just after around 10, 10.15 a.m. after we wrap the show. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.